first, let's settle into the room a little bit, shed away our day, maybe turn up our ringers, put things away, and let's spend a little bit of time in quiet contemplation, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So if you'd like a cushion, there's lots of cushions in this closet right here for seated meditation or laying meditation, there's blankets, do whatever you need to do to get comfortable. Um, we're pretty laid back center. Even when we have like, you know, the teachers that make us all just want to weep because they're coming, it's still a pretty laid back center. It's a really beautiful place to come and rest. So let's uh, settle into the space. Find your comfort zone, whatever that is. Settle into your chair. If you'd like to close your eyes, you can. Let's just start with some really deep, clean, cleansing breaths at your own pace. Let's do five. Just really deep, clean breaths. Breathing in all sorts of clarity, goodness, and breathing back out anything that won't serve us in these next few hours as we sit together and talk. Tell it you'll bring it back later so it'll go away. Because sometimes they like to come back to me. So I just, ah, don't worry. I'll get back to you later. Just shoot them away. The goal is to be completely and totally present in this room. To just experience what it is to be in this room. Physically, mentally, emotionally. How does your body feel?
thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about those drafts. No. Um, <laughs> okay. Just kind of reviewing. <laughs> Sorry, that was really awkward. Um, kind of reviewing where we, what we've already talked about a little bit, right? Um, in the past week. Talk for a while and then take a little break and then move forward. So Jay Garfield is a Buddhist practitioner who's also a professor of Western philosophy. He's the author of this article. And as he says in the very beginning, he apologizes in advance for anything that's bizarre because everything that's good about the article he credits his teachers with and everything that's not he takes responsibility for. He talks about his sort of unorthodox views of looking at Buddhism and um, recognizes that uh, sometimes pushes things to the edge. I love, I'm also a student of Western philosophy and I love how he points out that Aristotle criticized his teacher Plato by saying, you know, we love our friends dearly, but we love the truth more. <laughs> Thank you, dear teacher. Here's my bench and I thought that was interesting that he gave his apologies. So he talks in general about the three turnings of the wheel and how they're often misconstrued. And I admit, I was one of those people that thought of them as layers, right? The first level was for people that's all they could handle, right? The second level, they could handle a little bit more. And the third level always kind of confused me because it didn't seem like it was an addition or, you know, and it was, felt like there were a lot of, um, there were contradictions, right? In the, in the three different turnings which was what drew me to this article, because I, I hoped it would explain them, and it, it does in a very beautiful way. Um, so he spends the first couple of pages, Dr. Garfield spends the first couple of pages of the article just setting the stage for that, right? About um, why he decided to look at this, why he felt it was important, pointing out that all three turnings of the wheel are all teachings of the Buddha, and that the Buddha didn't teach something wouldn't teach something that was wrong. And so when, when saying that there's different levels, one thing that he points out, it's at the bottom of page one, it spills over into the next page. Often the first turning is referred to with the phrase hinayana, right? Hina meaning lower. And so he says, you know, this is a direct quote. It's like saying, oh, I have my great friends and I have my inferior friends. I'm not saying bad things about my are just inferior, right? Saying that about those the first turning teachings, that they're lower teachings, they're inferior teachings. But they're teachings of the Buddha, right? And so it doesn't make sense that they would be inferior or lower. The Buddha would teach all things to be equal. So then he goes on at the top of the second page to talk about the fact, you know, we're not bad people. This is just the way it reflects in us. The contradictions are more than we can take on. And he talks about how, you know, continuing on in the page, that, um, you know, it's been pointed out before that, that they're contradictory. Um, and it seemed to be an easy resolution to sort of layer them. 
but that they are all teachings of the Buddha, and that even as he says at the bottom of the second page, top of the third, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, had come out to say that He said in a teaching that it was time to pay more attention to all three turnings because they seem to approach these different domains in different ways. And then he went home and he thought about it. And he decided that the Dalai Lama was right, that he has come to look at the three turnings in different ways. And that's, I read that part of the article and that's what really excited me because I wanted the opportunity to look at them. And so just in a nutshell, if you look at the top of page three, second paragraph, he says, the first turning sets out for us the general characterization of the nature of reality, the general characterization of samsara, the life we're living, its causes and the means for release from samsara. The second turning teaching set out the nature of emptiness from the side of the objects of knowledge. And the third turning teaching set out the understanding of emptiness from the side of the subject so we've talked about the first and second turnings already. So I'm just going to kind of go over in a summary, going back through the article like I've just been doing these last few minutes, to point out some things to kind of get us up and ready for that third turning. Because I know I need the reminder, and you guys haven't been here before, so clearly you need the reminder, and I won't speak to you. I'll just talk to my own need for the reminder. <laughs> you guys might have it all down. It could be here. Just lay it out. But I needed the review. <laughs> So that first turning, really what he's saying here is that in that, that first teaching that Buddha delivered to his five initial disciples, we're here at page three, that was when he laid out the Four Noble Truths, right? That was the first teaching that told it like it was. And that also was the teaching where he laid out the Eightfold Noble Path. And so what are those Four Noble Truths? Anybody got those? I love Lama's way of saying them. Life is suffering. Mm -hmm. Here's why. There's a way out, and here's how. Exactly. Mama says, life sucks, here's why. It doesn't have to suck, here's how. I like that. <laughs> so, life is suffering, right? Well, that sounds pretty miserable. What do you mean life is suffering? Well, what he meant by that is we're all, we're all going to die. There's all things that we want that we might not get. Life is about grasping at things, right? When you're not looking at the world in, in the right way. It, life can be a lot of suffering. It, it's a lot of not getting what we want, right? And so that's what he means by life is suffering. And we don't even realize how much we're suffering. I mean, a lot of times we'll blame stuff on, on well, most of the time, all the time for me, we'll blame things on, on causes and conditions that didn't really even happen to create them, right? And so that's just grasping at that, that looking for that cause, that blame, in this current 3D world to get angry at, right? And that we're stuck. We're stuck always looking for something to blame, and that if we could just look at the world in the right way. And here's the here's why. No, life sucks because we're dying and everything. Here's, huh. Here's why. It's because we're looking at the world in the wrong way, right? We're grasping at these things, trying to make it into something different. Life doesn't have to suck. That part's easy. All you have to do is look at the world in a different way, right? That's an easy thing to say. Well, the here's how, that's where it gets a little harder, right? And that's where the Eightfold Path comes in. 
That's the hold that healers have. That you can alleviate that suffering in your life by living your life in a specific way, doing specific things. And then you'll no longer be stuck looking at the world wrong and stuck in that suffering existence. So what did that Eightfold Path tell us? I'm on page four, about halfway down. paragraph in order to accomplish that. That's where the Eightfold Path is kind of loosely discussed. So what is it? The Eightfold Path is grouped into three basic sets. There's a wisdom set, an ethical set, and a meditative set. The wisdom set means having the right understanding and the right intention for moving forward. The ethical set is using right speech, right actions, and right livelihood. And the meditative set is about right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So we're asked to live our lives constantly under examination, right? Reflectively, meditatively, as a way of understanding the right worldview of looking at that's a whole other teaching. But this is all that he's talking about in that first turning of the wheel, is just laying out for us why it is we're suffering, how it is we can stop it, right? He also goes on to explain at the bottom of page four, page five, when talking about the self, there's a conversation between uh, King and Nagasena, Nagasana, a teacher of the time, where the king says, you know, I hear your teachings, but you talk a lot about there being no self, that there's no one there. But if there's no one there, who is it that is wearing these clothes? Who is it that we're paying homage to? Who is it that's even practicing, right? And this is that first step in maybe starting to get a glimpse of an understanding of how things really are. And the response comes back, you know, how did you get here? Thank you. Hmm? Are you asking that? Yeah, sure, how'd you get here? <laughs> right, in a car, yeah. right? So where's the car? Is the car in the axle? Is it in the gas pedal? Is it in the seat that you sat in? Is it the speedometer? Is it the fuel that's in the car? Where's the actual car? Right? Yeah, so is that what he's referencing when he says it? That's what we refer to it when they're functioning all together. Yeah, right? That whole assembled being is the car, no one part of it. But without it all being assembled together, you won't have a car. Well, it's the same with us, right? Where's Pam? It's not in my finger, not in my nose, right? It's not just my brain. It's kind of the whole assembled piece that's Pam that was labeled Pam in this particular life. So it's not that there's no self that does not exist. 
It's that it doesn't exist in the way we think it does, right? I can cut off my arm and I'm still Pam. I can get rid of a whole lot of me and I'm still Pam. Yet we don't often look at things that way. So this was just those first, the first teachings to get us open to the idea that there was another kind of life out there that was something other than suffering. Heather and, and, and Michael, you were here for, was there anything else that I should review from the first journey that it sticks out in your mind? That comes in in the second journey. We get the flavor of it a little bit with the, the idea of the car and the chariot, right? Did you have a question? See things out of the corner of my eye. Maybe it's just a little thing running around. <laughs> um, so we got the flavor of that by you know what is the chariot? What is the car? Right. So that the first turning of the wheel is all about understanding what life is and understanding a better way to live it, so that we can get through it without suffering. Right. So then well, the second. Kind of, it's kind of funny because hearing you. You know, hearing like I'm not my finger, I'm not my hand, like it. And I've been hearing these things for a long time, but it seems it's like, yeah, so what? Like, who cares? Like, I still have that feeling, but I don't. But I don't act like that. I don't. I don't know. If maybe all of you do, but I don't act like I know that at all. Like throughout my life, because if I did, if someone insulted my body, I, like, who cares? Like this isn't me. But it's so funny just hearing these things. I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, I get it. You know, like you want <laughs> to just like that. Yeah. you want to just like let it go. Like your mind does not want it to sink in or something. It's funny, isn't it funny? Yeah. Exactly. They're, oh, well, I get that. But at the you same time, we'll get so upset when somebody attacks me, right? Or like if I stub my toe or something, or like, yeah, I know I'm not. Not my body, but oh my god, I'm like, this is so painful. And you know, not that it's not painful, but I don't act that way. But I can see my mind being like, yeah, what's the big deal? You know? Yeah. It's weird. So that first turn, all about the nature of reality, that idea that things are not what they seem, general characterization of samsara how to be released from it. Life sucks, here's why. Doesn't have to suck, here's how. That eightfold path, that contemplated life, that's all laid out in the first turning. And then in the second turning of the wheel, now I'm at page five, but I'm gonna skip back for a second and read what you have on page three again. The second turning set up the nature of emptiness from the side of the objects of knowledge. Second turning took place, uh, many, many, many more disciples present, um, different location. We're in a different book of teachings now. He explains at the beginning of, uh, Garfield, Professor Garfield explains at the beginning of this section that not all of the teachings that we read necessarily came directly from the Buddha that many of them might have been written hundreds if not thousands of years later by scholars that have studied the words, right? And so we get to kind of wrap our head around how we want to view this. He points out that he views them all as words of the Buddha as long as they're 
you know, sanctioned teachings. But that's, of course, a personal decision. So it's just an interesting part of the article to read if you hadn't read it before. Um, and it says page five. Yeah, page five, those first few paragraphs. Um, the thing that I had never realized before and that I thought was particularly interesting, I've read the Heart Sutra, the Heart of Wisdom Sutra, I love it a lot, and I, I never knew that it's believed many contemporary, at the very bottom, the last two sentences, most contemporary scholars believe that the Heart Sutra was in fact composed in China and translated back to Sanskrit, which I thought was pretty interesting, especially given the relationship So I've turned the page, I'm on page six now, top of page six. Um, Lord Vulture Peak, with an enormous assembly of bodhisattvas and celestial beings. And um, second paragraph, the Buddha is in the midst of a meditation that is often referred to as the meditation on the enumeration of phenomena. And in the Heart Sutra, it talks about how uh, one of the disciples, Sariputra, asked a question of one of the bodhisattvas that was present. He asked him how somebody should practice the profound perfection of wisdom practice. How should they practice this if what they want to do is get enlightened? And Professor Garfield points out something that I hadn't even bothered to pay attention to before, really, which was the fact that he asked that question of Chen Renzig, which is, who is the Bodhisattva of Compassion, where you would have thought that he would have asked that question of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. And he points out here that, uh, that it's a very important message of the Heart Sutra that here at the heart of the sutra on wisdom we have the embodiment of compassion and that the only motivation for developing the kind of wisdom that is necessary that's worthy at all for this is the motivation through the motivation of compassion right we have to have that grand sense of compassion and understanding for all beings in order to truly develop the wisdom to see things as they really are otherwise why would we do it we'd be too stuck in selfishness it wouldn't matter, right, how things came at us. They were just coming at us. That was mind-blowing. So, what does Chen Renzig say? <laughs> form is empty. Emptiness is form. That form is not different from emptiness, and that emptiness is not different in form. That someone who wants to practice the profound perfection of wisdom should see phenomena like that. So what does that mean? Form is empty and emptiness is form. So we scoot down to the next paragraph. And he talks of the, Garfield talks about a microphone, but I'll use this clock. You know, this clock is right here. It's clearly in the room. <laughs> um, form is empty. So this is a clock, just like the car is a car and the Pam is a Pam, because that's what we've labeled it. It's pieces and parts put together form a clock. 
right? We create this clock. But it's called a clock because we named it that. It's not like it's suddenly, like we look at it, if an archaeologist dug this up 5,000 years from now when they're no longer using these kinds of clocks, he wouldn't suddenly see it and go, oh, look, a clock, right? They'd have to try to figure out what it was because form, the physical clock, is empty of being a clock from its own side. We just labeled it that. My dog probably wouldn't see a clock. He knows about them. He knows what alarms are, because I reach over him in the morning to turn it off. Yes, my dog does know that. But he doesn't really know what a clock is for. So when we say form is empty, that's what we mean, right? The things aren't labeled from their own side. When we create something, we have to figure out what to call it. We've invented something new. It was dependent on those causes and conditions to come together, putting this widget and that widget together to get a clock. So the form is empty. But then he also said, emptiness is form. Garfield explains that a little bit more in the paragraph below. It's kind of like, okay, I can, I can have you the clock. Here, you take the clock, but I'm going to keep the emptiness. Well, it doesn't work that way, right? The emptiness has to travel with the clock. Emptiness doesn't exist unless we have a form to be labeled. So if we didn't to say that things aren't real doesn't make sense. I love that at the very bottom of page six, the last four sentences, or the last five. I can't say, here, you take the microphone, I'll keep the emptiness, because emptiness is a property of the microphone. Because it is, it tells us that we can't reify the emptiness, because to reify emptiness would be to depreciate form, depreciate real things. So the second line in the Heart Sutra says, take reality seriously. It might be empty, but it's the only reality we've got. And to grasp the emptiness as if it's the reality behind it is to toss away the only world we have. So we have to recognize that there are physical forms in this world. If I try to walk through that wall, I'll splatter into it instead of falling to the ground. But I named it a wall, right? So that's what we mean when we say things don't really exist. They just don't exist by the names that we want to call them. Those are agreed upon things. Form is empty. They go hand in hand. So then what about the idea that form isn't different from emptiness and emptiness isn't different from form? We're on page seven now at the very top. It's, that's just understanding that physical things are made of parts. If you don't make a clock, you don't get a clock. You get a piece of plastic and another piece of plastic and a few wires and a little piece of ribbon and a couple of buttons. But if you don't put them together, you don't make a clock. You don't have a clock. There's a potential for a clock, but you don't have a clock. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have form without emptiness, and you can't have emptiness without form. 
something exists, it's got to be empty. And in order for it to be empty, it has to exist. an object of knowledge is to be conventionally, empirically real, and to be ultimately empty. That's what Jung was saying. says, whatever is dependently originated, that's emptiness. That being a dependent designation is the middle way. Since there is nothing that is not originated dependently, there's nothing that's not included. Emptiness isn't non-existence. It's the only mode of existence we So now we're moving into new material. We did the last paragraph on page seven we hadn't covered before. So before we move forward, um, is there anything, Michael or Heather, that you think should be added? So we already talked about. All right, it's about quarter after seven. So let's finish up the second turning, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll talk about the third turning. So bottom of page seven. talking about the connection between an understanding of the emptiness of objects and experience and the cultivation of compassion. Why should I be compassionate? According to Garfield, that's the wrong question to ask yourself. More importantly is to ask yourself why would I ever want to be very last couple of sentences. When I look all over the vast universe of sentient beings, there's only one of them whose suffering is important enough to eliminate. Guess who it is? It's not you, it's me. I'm the only one whose suffering that's worth eliminating. My suffering that's worth eliminating. So easy to get stuck there. Garfield, Shantideva's point is that really we do need a reason to believe we're that important.
give ourselves, the reason that we give ourselves that reality, mm. that belief that our existence is different from everyone else, it starts to clarify that we start to think that, when we start to realize that my happiness isn't dependent on your happiness, that I'm completely independent, Completely reasonable that I'm permanent, and that the rest of you are just nothingness. And he's saying here that that's why it's so important to cultivate an understanding of emptiness, that it's all just labels. We start to, the barrier between us and others starts to disintegrate. start to realize that everyone is like us and is suffering in the same way that we do, that starts to bring about compassion and that in turn brings about the desire for more wisdom. This was so much clearer to me earlier when I was looking at it, oh, I know exactly, and I, you know, and now I'm reading it and I'm like blank. I'm <laughs> not interesting. Profound connection between the understanding of the emptiness of the objects of experience and the cultivation of compassion. Shanti Davis' point is that you actually need a reason to believe that you are so important. And in fact, we all give ourselves a reason. The reason that we give ourselves is the reality of the distinction between self and others, our substantial existence and the difference from everybody else, the fact that my happiness doesn't depend on your happiness, that I'm completely independent, and this very reasonable view that I'm permanent, independent, and substantial, and the rest of you are just a bunch of stuff. David points out that that's the only reason it can be rational to be, to be taking this objective. So the way to dissolve egoism is to sort of say, let's, is not to sort of say, let's everybody be nice now, it doesn't work, but rather to cultivate, at the top of page eight, to cultivate the view of emptiness, to cultivate the understanding of emptiness of all objects and phenomena, because then egoism doesn't have the ground to stand on. And then compassion naturally arises because what compassion is the commitment to alleviate because what compassion is and then compassion naturally arises because what compassion is the commitment to alleviate. 
trouble is the construction of the barrier between ourselves and others, a conceptually constructed barrier. And it's a barrier that's only possible if we don't understand emptiness. So that's why there's a deep connection in the Mahayana between the understanding of the nature of all phenomena as empty and the spontaneous development of compassion. Because if I'm empty, you're empty. And so it makes us equal. And so it helps to erase that egocentric. See, I'm bigger than that. Lauren is helping me a bunch of So interesting sometimes, even the emptiness of teachings. Sometimes I can read something and it feels like it just snaps and clicks. And then the next time I read it, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Well, it's such a funny balance because mostly I know myself, I'm extremely selfish. I take care of myself the most out of anyone else in the entire world. And then at the same time, I think human nature is like longing to take care of other beings. And then it's said that the only motivation that's going to get us to do anything to get out of suffering is to help other beings. But then we're all only helping ourselves mostly. And like, we have to really push ourselves to help others. It's just like, it's just such an interesting paradox. And like, it's just ironic. Yeah. The things that really help us is the thing that we see the weirdest in too. And then there's others. I mean, I know lots of people that just seem to put themselves on a back burner. Mm -hmm. They burn themselves out just doing things for everybody else. Right? But then they don't take good enough care of themselves, and so they end up in the long run not being able to do much for anybody anyway because they just burn themselves out. But that doesn't come from a place of wisdom. Right. At all. That comes. It's, maybe it makes them feel better. or mm -hmm. Yeah, like they think it's going to make them feel good or whatever, but it's not coming from a place of wisdom. Right. Or I guess we don't know because we can't read their minds. Right. But, <laughs> well, but it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't, I don't experience it that way. But it, it, for me, it just, it also speaks to the fact that they don't see them as equals. They don't see each them and the other people as equals, right? You're either, it's either skewed in one direction where you are the best and you're kind of taking pity on these people and helping them every now and then, or everybody else is better than you and maybe you take pity on your, but it's like never getting to that equal point. Well, it's interesting because how Lama Root describes that, those two are the same. It's like you're making yourself special by being lower than everyone. Oh, interesting. I and then another person. Yeah. I mean, I don't do that. That's not my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting how he said that. No, that so makes I don't, perfect sense. Mm -hmm. That as one who's had that as her specialty for a long time in her life and is shifting away from that specialty, I totally get that too. Oh, look at everything I do for everybody else. Right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Well, in like in a very roundabout way, he's come back to the beginning of his thing where he was talking about um, chin raising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how that you cannot se separate wisdom and compassion. They're... They're all, together. They're all together. That's what he chose this example specifically because yeah. it melted in with that. And by the way, all of these um, readings, there is a handout 
I probably have a couple extra copies. There's some on the board, too. Is there some there? Mm -hmm. And there's links to all of the readings that he talks about <clears throat> in this article. If you wanted to do further study, there's like a little study guide handout that I put together for the class, so you can pick that up. And, and I loaded it online, so you don't have to type the links in. You can just go to the online document, and the address for the online document's on the first page, and then you can click on any of the links that you want to to get. And then his final paragraph in this section. It should be clear why we should all study second turning texts. Second turning texts are important for developing the profound view of emptiness, for developing the profound understanding of the nature of our objects of experience, and for cultivating the very possible moral sentiments we have. But notice, nothing we've talked about in the second turning is inconsistent with anything we talked about in the first. It's supplementary. It deepens the idea. It extends the idea of the path, but it doesn't undermine the objective which for me was new, right? I mean, I didn't really understand what I was saying. I just, you know, parroted what I'd heard others say, what I'd read in a few texts that I'd read, that, you know, it was this layered thing. But I have such, I'm so grateful for this article. It's given me such a deeper understanding. So it is 7.30, and we typically take a few minute break at 7.30 to stretch our minds and our legs and get a glass of water or tea or whatever you want. So um, let's do that. Okay. Let's come back in what, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, and so 740?